you have a Bible today, please open to Matthew 5 this morning. My message is titled, Follow Christ and Be Persecuted. But that couldn't be the entire title. So I added, Follow Christ and Be Persecuted and Rewarded. It is fascinating to me that the believer who follows the Beatitudes will be both a peacemaker and one who creates persecution. We are peacemakers when we share the gospel and people get saved, they have peace with God. At the same time, we are antagonists when they reject it. We bring peace and we make trouble in the world. We hear it from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who said as he came as the prince of peace to bring peace, but he also said, I came not only to bring peace, but a sword. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, it brings peace, but it also brings persecution. And so we come to the Beatitudes, and each Beatitude begins with the word blessed. It means happy, happy. Jesus said, if you want to be a joy-filled, happy follower of me, then this is the way you live. And when you live out that virtue, then there is a promise, a blessing that comes that you will experience. Now, will you please stand with me as I read the last beatitude from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. May we pray. Father, thank you for the word of God that guides us and shows us the truth about life and death heaven and hell, salvation and forgiveness. I pray if there be one in our auditorium that is not sure that heaven is their home, may the Spirit of God draw them. May they believe and receive Christ and be born again into your family. Father, I pray for each Christian. Help us to be so committed, to so live in such a way that your light and love and truth shines through us and yes, brings conviction and persecution and salvation to others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Uh, it seems like a contradiction. How can you be happy and persecuted at the same time? How can you have joy when people say bad things about you, they lie about you, they torture you, imprison you, and even kill you? It seems like a contradiction. Jesus did not sugarcoat the Christian life. In his signature sermon on how to become a follower of Christ, he was very upfront that there is going to be a cost. And so we find one promise in verses 10 and 11, and that's at the end of verse 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the promise. You say, well, if it's only one promise, then why do we have two blesseds? Blessed in verse 10, blessed verse 11. Here's why. 
I believe there are two blessed because you are double blessed if you experience persecution and suffering for Jesus Christ. I read about a man who took a new job with an evil group of men, and he was very fearful about his first day on the job uh, with these men, what they might say, what they might do to him, because he was a Christian. So after the first day at work, he got home, and his wife said, Hey, honey, honey, how did it go with your new co-workers? He said, Terrific. They never even found out I was a Christian. Do you know, you can get along terrifically with everybody if nobody finds out that you're a Christian. But as you begin to let Christ live through you, as you begin to shine God's love and God's light through your words and through your actions, you'll begin to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. If you don't experience resistance, if you don't experience persecution, that means your Christianity is hidden. Following Christ today produces the same reaction it produced when Jesus was living on the earth. And so in verse 13, we'll, we'll not look at it today, but verse 13 says, you're the salt of the earth. Verse 14 says, you're the light of the world. He says, do not hide your Christianity. Now, there was never anyone more loving than Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Uh, there was no one who was more filled with peace and grace and love he was magnanimous, and yet everywhere he went, people got mad. People became angry. They became upset. Why, why? Because he spoke the truth about God, and he spoke the truth about the issues of life. It's always been that way. I mean, from righteous Abel uh, being murdered by an ungodly brother who could not tolerate his righteousness, it's been that way all the way down through the ages. The Old Testament prophets were persecuted. We find that here in verse 12. It's no different today in the 21st century than it was in the 1st century. He that is born of the flesh always persecutes he that is born of the Spirit. Now, we've been blessed. We've been blessed to live in the most tolerant country in the world in the most tolerant time in history. But the cross is still a point of conflict. Just this week, uh, an appeals court struck down a lower court that said a cross could not be displayed at a public park in Pensacola, Florida. And the appeals court said, no, no, no. It's like a 34-foot cross. Yes, you can have that cross there because the Supreme Court has a previous precedence that allows it to happen. Now, who is persecuted? There in your notes, followers of Christ. Who is persecuted? Followers of Christ. True followers of Christ have never persecuted anyone. You look in the Gospels, the Jews... And the Roman leaders persecuted Christ. You look in the book of Acts, the Jew, the Greek, the Roman leaders persecuted Christians. So I've just given you a quick summary of what happened to the Jerusalem church after Jesus went back to heaven. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they're imprisoned, they're threatened. Chapter 5, apostles are imprisoned and threatened. Chapter 7, Stephen is murdered, the first martyr of the church. Chapter 8, mass persecution. Chapter 9, Saul expands the persecution to Damascus, Syria. And by the way, right now, right now, horrific persecution of Christians in Syria. Chapter 9, Saul is now saved. The Damascus Jews plot to kill him. Chapter 12, King Herod kills James. He imprisons Peter. 
And then you have the missionary teams are persecuted. Paul goes out on three missionary trips. Everyone experienced uh, a severe persecution, beatings, torture, imprisonments, stonings. And you can read those. I've given the references to you. And then the early Christians were persecuted. Ten major persecutions of Christians during those first 300 years of Christianity. Jeremiah said, my eye affecteth my heart. So I wanted to, I wanted to show you something that, that our spiritual ancestors went through. But honestly, I watched several, and I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Even to see a Hollywood portrayal of these lions coming and attacking men, women, teenagers, children, couldn't do it. And so I found a clip that, that has the history experts and a couple of still shots. But this is what our spiritual ancestors went through for 300 years. Christianity was a struggling, small, persecuted minority that didn't have official status in the Roman Empire. And there were a series of persecutions, some of which were quite severe. One of the roles of religion in the Roman Empire was to ensure the well-being of the state. The idea was if the gods were worshipped properly, then they would favor the empire. And if they were worshipped improperly, then they would, you know, bad things would happen to the empire as a result of divine wrath. They do not want to sacrifice to the gods, and the gods at that point include the emperor. So it's easy to consider these people um, religious scapegoats. Basically, if something's going wrong, probably it's because there are Christians around who are refusing to give the gods their proper due. Well, of course, you have to punish them, and punishment meant, you know, most of the time, death. What people thought was that Christians gathered together also seemed to make love with their brothers and sisters because there were rumors about them that they, they commit incest. Well, because the, the Christians used to call themselves brother and sister, and uh, they used to eat the flesh of Christ. People heard, apparently, that Christians were eating children. So when pagans heard about this, they, they thought the worst, right? They assumed the worst. Christians are progressively stripped of their civil offices, their military offices, their books are confiscated, their churches are destroyed, they're forbidden to meet, and so on, all because there's an anxiety that this is really undermining the, the welfare of the empire. As the early church suffered under this withering persecution of Rome, their lives became a powerful testimony for truth. While the pagans lived in constant superstitious fear, these Christians faced torture and death with a supernatural peace. Basically what Nero did was he fed them to the lions, uh, he had them tied to pillars, he put pitch on them, and then he set them on fire as human torches so they could have the festivities continue on into the night. You know, being stretched, pulled into, uh, you know, being uh, killed by gladiators. Just about every creative way <laughs> that you can dispose of Christians. When facing the painful end of their lives, they often sang and rejoiced. As thousands of Christians paid the ultimate price for their faith, their dying prayers and blood essentially became seed for the new church. People are so enthralled by how these Christians are dying that immediately, uh, you know, the, the reaction is, sign me up. 
And so the Christians spread like wildfire. The more you killed them, the more they stood for their faith. Now it is true, and I think it has to be emphasized, that the early church spreads despite the uh, very concerted attempts at repression of extremely autocratic uh, and powerful emperors who set themselves very firmly against the Christians and yet the early church survives. Tertullian argues whenever something goes wrong, whenever there's a famine or whenever there's a, a, an illness, a pestilence that sweeps through, everybody says, the Christians to the lion. And then he says snidely, as if so many could be fed to so few. And his point is that you can't destroy us all. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the, do you know it? The seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Did you hear the one historian say, when, when unbelievers saw the Christians die with such supernatural peace, they responded with, sign me up. Sign me up. Ten emperors tried to destroy Christianity, and it only grew, and more people became saved. Finally, in 313, Emperor Constantine gave the Edict of Milan and said that Christians can now worship in freedom. And sadly, over the years to follow, what happened is many thousands of people, they took their, their pagan religion. It was a mother-child cult that went all the way back to the Old Testament and the queen of heaven that they worshipped in the Old Testament the Canaanites called her Ashtaroth the Greeks called her Aphrodite the Romans called her Venus and so now that it's a Christian nation a Christian empire today she is still called the Virgin Mary standing on a crescent moon Christians have been persecuted throughout history the Crusades are a blot on human history. The Crusades were atrocities perpetrated by Catholics and Protestants, not by Bible-believing Christians. I put it in a box so everyone will know clearly, true Christians never persecuted anyone, anywhere, not in Europe, not in Asia, not in Africa, not in America, not anywhere True Christians never persecute anyone. We believe in soul liberty. God gave you a free will to choose, to receive, or to reject. And letter E, Christians will be persecuted in the tribulation. The greatest persecution of Christians and Jews is yet to come. It's after the rapture. We will not be here. Revelation chapter 17. And the woman, that's a symbol of the one world church, arrayed in purple and scarlet, decked with gold and stones and pearls, has a gold cup in her hand full of abominations. Upon her head is named Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. That's the one world church, ecumenical church. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That is yet to come. That's motivation to, to become a Christian now. Okay, so who is persecuted? Followers of Christ. Why are Christians persecuted? Jesus gave us two reasons. For righteousness' sake, for doing right, and he said, for my sake, taking his name. And so you have a general statement in verse 10. 
Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness. And then you have it personalized in verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you. Notice, falsely for my sake. And so Jesus, he tells us, they're going to come after us. They're coming after us. How will they come after us? Verse 11, revile. That is verbal abuse to the face. They shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. That's slander behind the back. It's happened to me. It's happened to you. It's happened to pastors and Christians that you know. And then persecution, physical beating, torture, imprisonment, and death. Jesus says, don't take it personal. They really don't hate you. They don't. They hate me. And since I'm not always going to be here, they're going to take their hatred of me out on you. And the persecution is actually against Christ. But since he is not here, the persecution goes against those who follow Christ. Now, why are Christians persecuted? We are persecuted for what we believe. What we believe. We believe the Word of God. Why? We believe the Bible is God's Word. Why? Because it is God's Word. We believe the Word of God because it is true. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. We believe the Word of God because it's reality. Now, I know we live in America, and every sports game we sing about the, uh, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Uh, you're free to believe anything you want, even if it's not true. But if you choose to believe the truth, you will be persecuted by those who believe lies. We're persecuted for what we believe. We're persecuted for what we say. What do we say? We have one great commission. Go tell people about Jesus. Tell people that he is the only Savior. Tell them that they need a Savior who will forgive their sins. Many people don't like that message. They want to silence the message. All of us need to major on the majors, minor on the minors. Witnessing is a major. I mean, a lot of people get passionate about a lot of things. If you would take the thing that you're most passionate about and take about half that passion and give it to the Great Commission, you'd be a great Christian. Augustine wrongly said many years ago, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. You don't find that in the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, go and preach the gospel. Yeah, should we live a Christian life? We certainly should, but we're to open our mouth. We're to, with a smile on our face, talk about Jesus. We are persecuted for what we believe. We're persecuted for what we say. We're persecuted for what we do. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why does righteous living upset unsaved people? Uh, it is obvious. How does righteous living make unbelievers feel? How does it make them feel? It makes them feel guilty. They feel guilty. And so when a Christian follows the Bible, when a Christian chooses purity, when a Christian is honest, when a Christian speaks the truth, when a Christian uh, gives an honest day's labor for an honest day's pay, when a Christian just does the right thing, it brings conviction upon their conscience. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are what? Evil. And so, if you just do the right thing, 
going to make some people unhappy. They're going to become upset with you. you here's what, what's happening. When you do right, you're turning on a light switch. You're turning on God's light, and that brings conviction to their heart. And so persecution comes because of what we believe, what we say, what we do. So I thought it would be appropriate for me to share with you how to avoid persecution because nobody likes pain. So how not to get persecuted? Here's, here's a point. Love the world more than Jesus. Just love the world more than Jesus. Fit right in with the world's views. Be like that guy at work. Nobody knows I'm a Christian. Laugh at the smutty jokes from the late night TV shows. Entertain yourself with movies and music that, that takes God's name in vain, that promotes immorality, that extols godliness. Uh, just love the world, not Jesus. And then agree with the world's anti-biblical views. So, so refuse to share the truth that life begins at conception. You won't be persecuted. Refuse to share the truth that marriage is only for a man and woman. Refuse to share the truth that physical, sexual intimacy is only for married people. And again, that's a man and a woman. Refuse to share the truth that God made two genders, male and female, Genesis 2.24. Refuse to share the truth that there is only one way to heaven through Jesus Christ, John 14, 6. One more. How to avoid persecution? Never share your faith. Never share your faith. Don't tell people that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Never say that, that only, only God can forgive your sins based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. <coughs> if you do these three things, I promise you, you can avoid persecution. But at the end of the day, you need to examine your heart and see if you are really a Christian. Because if there's no fruit, if there's no light coming from your life, if there's no life, if you are never persecuted, it's because you're either not a Christian or you have hidden your Christianity so much that no one knows. That means you're living in disobedience. Okay, so what do we do? What do we do when you're persecuted? Are we supposed to stockpile food? Are we supposed to have a cabin in the mountains? Are we supposed to escape? Uh, maybe you've seen it, uh, heard it on the radio, on the internet, $599, and you can buy, you can buy a, a how to escape from persecution. That's baloney. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to run and hide. No, we're supposed to stand and shine. Jesus prepared us for persecution. So what to do when you're persecuted? Letter A, expect it. That's what he said. Expect it. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Uh, and then look at verse 12. Rejoice. What to do when you're persecuted? Rejoice. Rejoice in it. Be blessed. Be happy. To the Philippians, he said, you have been counted not just to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Can we really rejoice in suffering? Well, I believe the apostles who heard this message again and again, they got it. They left us an example. There in your notes, Acts 5.40. And when they had called the apostles, this is the Jewish council, they beat them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
Do you know what they did? They arrested all the apostles. They beat all the apostles. They threatened them. They let them go. And as they're walking down the sidewalk, the road, back home, they're giving high fives. Hey, oh, we got to suffer for Jesus. He died on a cross for our sins. And we're now counted worthy to be able to suffer for him. Rejoice. He didn't say just rejoice. He said rejoice and be glad. He didn't say just be glad. He said be exceeding glad that we are so identified with Jesus Christ as his follower that we would suffer for him. So, so expect it, rejoice in it, let her see, endure it, endure it. Persecution takes on many forms. We typically think of, uh, of the extreme forms of torture, imprisonment, and death, uh, people being burned in India, people being beheaded in Africa, uh, Christians fed to the lions back in the days of Rome. But persecution has many faces, doesn't it? Passed over for promotions. I know people right here today, they were passed over for promotion because of their faith. Ostracized by family, friends, and co-workers. I know people right here today, this is a large swath of our church family. You've experienced this type of persecution. Gossiped and lied about by others. Loss of job. We have people right now here in this auditorium, they lost their job because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Many have experienced all types of persecution. We are to endure it. Letter D, we're to believe the promise of reward. <coughs> Verse 12, great is your reward in heaven. Do you know that Christians in every age, every era, have faced this conflict of living out their faith versus career advancement. Living out your faith versus career advancement. A hundred years after Jesus said this, a man came to Tertullian and he said, I, I, I have a job and I don't think it's right, but I don't know what to do. What can I do? I must live. To which Tertullian replied, must you? Must you? The priority is Christ over life itself. One more counsel, and that is be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, Matthew 10, 16. You know that Jesus never called us to be obnoxious, did he? He never called us to be obnoxious. Paul said, speak the truth in what? Love, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. My heart is saddened when obnoxious, antagonistic Christians make the news. They do not represent Christ. They do not represent us. The truth of the gospel is offensive, but we are not to be offensive ourselves. We are not called to be Old Testament prophets. What are we called to do? Well, I've asked our leadership team at church to memorize and practice uh, these verses, 2 Timothy 2. There in your notes, 24 and 25. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to, to the acknowledging the truth. And so, if, uh, Christian, if we are called to be gentle with the unbelievers, how much more gentle are we to treat one another with those in our own church with whom we may disagree with from time to time. What does he say? You be gentle. You be kind. 
you have a meek spirit about you. Paul said to the Thessalonians, I was like a nursing mother, a tender, caring, nursing mother and a caring father. Have you ever met a Christian and, and it seems like they are, they are, they are so convinced uh, that their position is right, but their disposition is all wrong? You know what I mean? Bless God, I know I'm right. And then they act, they act unchristian. Let's not be obnoxious with the lost. Let's not be obnoxious with the saved. One more, and that is pray for others who are persecuted. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, good to mark in your Bible. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought about the people that are being persecuted right now in the millions around the world? And why, why you weren't born in Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, China, India, many places in Africa, persecuted by the millions this week. By the grace of God, you're here, they're there. But what if it were reversed? What if you were in a country right now that you're being persecuted either by the government or by sectarian factions? And they were here. Trade places for a moment and ask yourself, how would you want the Christians who are free to treat us, pray for us, care for us? God says, remember them. God says, pray for them. And so I'd like to be able to share, you, share with you a movie trailer, Tortured for His Faith, about Richard Wormbrand. My name is Richard Wormbrand. August 23, 1944. One million Russian troops entered my country. And then the nightmare began. You know what? I think you should perform the wedding. See you at the church in one hour. Sabina Wurmbrand. It is happening here just as it did in Russia. This is madness. Spitting in the face of Christ. You got gum from the officers again? <laughs> Did you give them a blessing? And a flower. husband. 14 years, Richard was imprisoned. He was tortured 
for his faith. He was released. He came to America. He started Voice of America, who has produced this film. I recommend our ABFs to set up a night to watch it together without elementary children. I recommend it for our teens. I recommend it for our singles. Though Voice of the Martyrs does a lot of great work, they are a non-denominational, interdenominational group, and they have had some recent leadership issues. And so I would like us to consider supporting a like-minded organization called Remember the Persecuted Church. And you can check the website out. It's rememberthose.org. Now, Voice of the Martyrs, which is what many are familiar with, it has a $60 million budget, and $9 million is spent on fundraising and administration. So I'd rather not send money to an organization and have my money go towards fundraising and administration. This group, remember, gives 100% of its donations to those in need in the persecuted church. One of our missionaries, Dr. Edgar Fagali, is on their board, and we trust him. And if you would like, you can review this website this afternoon, and we can consider as a church mission support in tonight's service. Now, what about you? What about you? Do you know what it is to live such a godly life that God can use your life to bring conviction to people around you? Not because you're obnoxious, not because you're proud, not because you're demanding, you're argumentative, not because you talk too much, but because there is so much of Christ in you and he shines out and God uses that to bring people to himself may we pray our father thank you thank you that you have said blessed blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven rejoice and be exceeding glad father we come into your presence asking you to speak to our hearts regarding our faith and following Jesus. With our heads bowed, as a pianist begins to play, I'm going to ask you, just in the quietness of your heart, to talk to the Lord. Maybe some of you need to say, Lord Jesus, I don't even know what it is to live the kind of a life that is convicting to unbelievers. I'm so caught up in the world myself. Uh, maybe you're here and you're not even sure if you are a Christian. Well, then there's a good possibility that you're not. That you just think you're a Christian and you've never really given your life to Christ. Maybe this is the time for you to make the commitment to become a true, genuine follower of Jesus. On the other hand, you say, well, I, I know I'm a Christian. I love the Lord Jesus, and this is the way I want to live. But I'm like Paul in Romans 7. I want it so much, but I just fail all the time. I don't do the things that I should do, and I do the things that I shouldn't do. Well, you can get on a new spiritual path today. God has given you his Holy Spirit. And if you'll yield to his Spirit one moment at a time, you can begin to live this kind of life 
that gives glory to God. This is the way to live. If you've never had anything in the world, you'd have the blessing of God. And if you have his blessing, you have everything that there is. And so that's why Peter said, if you're persecuted for Christ, happy, happy are you. Now with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, as we think about our own soul, I want to ask you, if you die today, do you know if you'd go to heaven because you have committed your life to Christ and you've even experienced some type of persecution, rejection for following Jesus. If you know that you're saved, would you simply raise your hand as a testimony all over this auditorium? I am saved. You may put your hand down. You'd say, Pastor, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure. I have doubt. I invite you to receive Christ today, right where you're seated. You say, how do I do that? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you want to receive Christ right now, simply raise your hand all over this auditorium. I want to be saved. I want to commit my life to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I've never done that, but I want to do it today. Simply raise your hand for a moment. I want to be saved. Christian, may I ask you, do you want to begin to live a life that pleases God, that shines the light and love and truth of Jesus? And that with a smile on your face and joy in your heart, you'll speak the truth, not to be obnoxious, not to be unkind, unkind or prideful, but because of a loving heart, loving Jesus, loving others. Ask God to show you how you can share Christ with family and friends and coworkers. Bless this time of invitation, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing a song of invitation this morning about loving Jesus. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. If you want to learn how to become a Christian, we'll have a pastor or pastor's wife speak to you. If you want to pray at the altar, if you've made a decision to be baptized, to become part of the church, you come as we sing together on the first verse. With others. Well, last week we had a fireside chat reflecting upon... Uh, my life of 60 years, dividing it up into quarters and, and uh, really emphasizing relationships. Uh, you can be passionate about a lot of things, but when it really comes down to it, what matters most is relationships. Your relationship with God, your relationship with uh, your spouse if you're married, your parents, your kids, your siblings, your friends, your church family, and then building a relationship with the lost to share the gospel with them. And so I'd like you tonight to open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2 this evening. 2 Timothy 2. So it's going to continue just for one more week along that same vein because of what happened this last week. As you're turning there, 2 Timothy 2, uh, the older I get, <laughs> I can say that now, uh, the older I get, uh, I actually forgot to show you this this morning. I was given this on the way in, and it says, um, it's a belated birthday gift. I guess they forgot to give it to me on time. Uh, <laughs> I'll be back. I'm having a senior moment. 
I forgot to show it to you this morning, so I thought I'd show it to you tonight. <laughs> I'll be back. I'm having a senior moment. Okay, so uh, the older I get, the more I am asked about how-tos in ministry among independent Baptist pastors for the Spiritual Leadership Asia Conference that has been postponed to 2021. And many of you have shared your relief that we're not going in harm's way where the virus may or may not be. I guess it is there in the Philippines. Uh, but I, ha I had been asked to speak last year. It's now transferred to next year on the topic session of effectively managing church ministry and management in a growing church. Uh, this summer at the Spiritual Leadership Conference in California uh, for pastors, deacons, Christian leaders, church members, I've been asked to be in a panel of two sessions. The one session, Avoiding Unnecessary Divisions and Burdens in a Church Ministry. And the second one, Creating Margin in Your Personal Life. I've also been asked to teach a third session on Pastoring with Effectiveness. I do not take these assignments lightly, nor do I consider myself an expert or a professional or all wise on these topics, just the opposite. I consider myself a student seeking to learn and grow. I mention this to you not out of pride, but because I need God's wisdom and your prayers. To be asked to be in a place of influence among hundreds of pastors is a weighty thing for me. And I do not take, I do not take it lightly. You know, it's one thing to be at home and, and make a mistake, give an account to God, and then to ask you to forgive me. You know, it's another thing to make a mistake and influence hundreds of pastors who in turn will uh, influence thousands of people in congregations. So please, 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 please pray for me regarding these opportunities of influencing and impacting other ministries that it would be in a biblical and a godly way. Now, there are seasons of growth and there are seasons of stability. All, all churches go through that. We go through that. Uh, your children's growth. You know, some years they sprout up three inches, and another year they might grow half an inch. You know, it's just, it just there are different seasons of, of growth and maturity. We're actually right now in one of those seasons of growth. In the last eight weeks, at the end of the service tonight, 22 people will have joined our church in the last eight weeks. That's a season of growth. 22 people, three-fourths of them adults, and also a few children, and just under half of them will be getting baptized on uh, Baptism Sunday. And I, I say that because I want you to know that you have a responsibility. First of all, to, to know who it is, we showed you a few pictures tonight, to meet them, to greet them, and may I, may I challenge you that the end goal is not that they would just join the church, but they'd become part of the fellowship, part of the body, meaning you have a responsibility to get to know them and to, uh, to pray for them and encourage them. And yes, have them over to your home. Who say, well, you, do you do that? Well, actually, yes, we do. We invite everyone who joins the church to come to our home. They don't all come, 
But when they find out that Jody is cooking, most of them do, all right? Uh, so, so you can have them to your home, you can take them out. Uh, and if, if 13 people invite them all on the same Sunday, that's okay. Uh, that just says that, that we want to get to know them and that we accept them. Us four and no more is carnal, selfish, and evil. And you don't have to drive very far away from here where, where there are some small churches and it's, it's family, I mean blood family. And if you're not part of the blood family, uh, you're not welcome. That's not a New Testament church. To be stagnant, to be dead, to be dying, to be uncaring. Uh, last week, I was asked to speak to the church planners sent out from Fairfax Baptist Temple. Being the one with the most longevity in pastoring, I was asked to speak on the topic, how to remain a biblically healthy church in a fast-changing world. I, I think our choir just sang about this, this changing world, didn't they? And so, uh, I, I am being asked again and again to be able to help the younger men from, from what? From jumping off the spiritual cliff to help them not to be blown by every wind of new fad and doctrine that comes along. When I finished the session, Pastor uh, Bud Calvert asked me to please get the content out to other pastors. He asked for my notes. See, so his opportunity to share in many churches uh, and conferences. So that brings us to 2 Timothy 2. Would you please stand? And I'll read to you a passage that helps us to understand how to remain a biblically healthy, growing church in a fast-changing world. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Now therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if any man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except... He strive lawfully. May we pray. Lord, tonight uh, we want to be a place where the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth and then to stop upon ministries, upon the hearts of people where you would show yourself strong. And you have done that and you continue to do that. And we always want to point people to Jesus Christ. We always want to give praise to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us never to take credit for what you do. Help us to exalt our Savior, to follow the Word of God, to believe it, to obey it, and to be able to point people to you in salvation and in spiritual growth. If there be one tonight, and they're just not sure if they're saved, may your Spirit do what we cannot do. May you convict them and draw them and save them. Now, Lord, I pray for each Christian that we would value and care about what you value and what you care about. May it impact the way we think on our attitude, our words, our actions. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
I've just read to you instructions about the older generation passing the baton to the younger generation, and then to the next generation, and after them, and so forth. A few months ago, back in November, Barna Research released a poll that revealed that 44% of 18 to 35-year-old Christians say that church is not an essential part of their faith. That's almost half. Really? Church is not an essential part of their faith. You have to ask, what Bible are they reading? Are they even reading a Bible to come to that conclusion? So let me show you a missionary map where the Apostle Paul traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles and risked his life for the gospel. You see, the whole point of the Great Commission is to make disciples. And that is in the context of a local church. So Paul risked his life on these three missionary journeys and a fourth as a prisoner going to Rome. And what did he do? He planted churches. He led people to Christ. He baptized them. He discipled them. He trained national leaders. He appointed pastors uh, in, in every city. He said, I, I appointed elders, Titus 1.5. And so as he did this, it grew and grew until more than 100 churches were planted during the ministry of the Apostle Paul. For the work of building God's churches... The persecution that he experienced that I preached to you this morning, including being yelled at, spit at, beaten, stoned, imprisoned multiple times, and eventually he lost his life. During his life and even imprisonment, Paul wrote, he wrote these churches, letters, and half of our New Testament are letters to local churches and letters to pastors of local churches, two to Timothy, one to Titus, a local church like this one here in Second Timothy. In Acts chapter 20, and we referred to that last week when Paul, when he, he hugged them, he kissed them, he prayed with them. In Acts 20, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem for a Jewish feast. And he stopped in Miletus. Uh, I know I've mentioned it to you before, but Miletus is near Ephesus. And this is, this is a picture of the Roman Colosseum. It's not a popular tourist site. Jody and I had the opportunity uh, a number of years ago. It was actually a, a, a secular tour. So the, there weren't pastors upon this tour. But when we got there, when we got there and, and they gave the history, and there's just a lot of ruins that hasn't been set up or erected yet. And, and so we're, we're standing right where the, the fella is there with the uh, umbrella. And this unsaved guide tells this group of unsaved people, and Jody and I, with a whisper in his voice, you are standing on holy ground. Thousands of Christians shed their blood and died right here. And as he expounded on that, my, my heart was moved, and I, you can't see it, but I went off to the top of the picture there and found a quarter underneath by myself, and I just had to take some time to pray and say, God, 
they were faithful. We'll never know their names. I didn't even know that happened in this place. But one day, as a Christian, I'm going to meet them. And I want to finish my, my race faithfully as they finished their race. And so it's in this, this meeting, I like to call it the Miletus message. And Paul, he, he, he meets with the pastors. They came down from Ephesus. He didn't want to get tied up. And, and this is what he says in Acts 20, 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, you pastors, and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. You are shepherds. You are leaders to feed the church of God. That's with the word of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. The church, and that's the body of people, that's you and I, we've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's pretty precious. To the local church, the body of believers, is extremely precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has, has purchased us with his own blood. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, if you defile the local church, the temple of God, God will destroy you. You say, really? Really? Does it say that? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Know ye, plural, know ye Corinthians, know ye not that you're the temple of God. Now, chapter 6, it's the individual Christian's body. But chapter 3, it's not the individual Christian. It's the entire local church together. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, the church, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, the church, the local church, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. That is a, that is a severe warning to every Christian not to be a participant in tearing down what God is building up. It's a serious warning. And that same bar in the survey, 80% of those who consider themselves practicing Christians, interesting, you had a group of Christians, and now you have a group of practicing Christians, they said that attending church was essential both to the growing of their faith and their obedience to God. And that's you tonight. You're practicing Christians. Not just Christians, you're practicing Christians. And I think those people read their Bibles. They read verses like Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. You can't do that unless you're face to face. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's the day approaching? The day approaching is the return of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we are closer to the return of Christ than anyone has been in church history. We are to be more committed to the local church than anyone in the first 20 centuries of Christianity. That's what it says. As you see that day approaching, you're to be committed to not forsaking the assembly together. So how? How to remain a biblically healthy church in a fast-changing world? Paul says in verse 1, Timothy, I want you to be strong in the Lord. Verse 1, be strong in his grace. Timothy, what I have taught you, I want you to teach to faithful men implying younger men. I want you to teach it to younger men. I want them to teach others also. I want you to be like a good soldier, verse 4. Be a leader. Be a leader. And then he says, No man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. And if you have a pen, 
you can underline it, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And so it's that phrase that he may please him. Timothy, above all else, I want you to remember to please God. I want you to please God. And so my number one priority as a Christian, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, as a son, is to please the Lord. I don't want a day to go by without thinking this thought. I will give an account of everything I say and do to Jesus Christ. Do you know why I want to think that? Because I'm going to give an account of everything I say and do to Jesus Christ. Romans, Romans uh, 12, 14, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 10 to 15. As a pastor, Revelation chapter 1, Jesus had the seven mess messengers, the seven angelos, the seven pastors in his right hand, and he gave the message from Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor to the seven pastors, and they gave the message to the churches. And that's how we got the, the letters, the seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3. Paul made this same point to the Ephesians, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, Ephesians 5.10. What you say, what you do may be acceptable, pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he told the Corinthians, uh, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. We want to please him. And so our first priority, both for our personal worship, our public worship, our service to Jesus Christ, it's to please Christ. It's to please Christ, to whom we will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. Our calling is not to rebuke unbelievers in the same way that Old Testament prophets confronted disobedient Jews. We are not Old Testament prophets confronting disobedient Jews. Rather, we are to follow the example of the Lord Jesus uh, as, as he dealt with the woman at the well and the woman taken in adultery. The Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians, I mentioned this morning, I was like a nursing tender mother, a nurse that cherisheth her children, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, like a caring father. Now, we certainly can learn from the Old Testament, but our calling in the church age is to minister exactly as we have been commanded. Don't take it out of context. I gave it this morning. It's worth repeating, 2 Timothy 2.24, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So there's our foundation. Our foundation is we live to please Christ and his word directs us on how to be able to do that. Now there are two trends Today in churches, and I'm, I'm speaking just rather uh, generally here, uh, there is the trend where churches that become so seeker-friendly that they have lost any distinction of Christian worship. I mean, from the mildly contemporary to the extremely contemporary to the emergent to the missional and any other new identifying term that someone comes up with next week. So that's one extreme. Change, 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 change. And that's even spilled over into the dead Protestant churches. 
Now, the other extreme among Bible-believing churches, the temptation is that to become a dying church. And many churches have become museums of the elderly. No life, no one getting saved, no one getting baptized, no youth ministries, uh, no nursery ministry, no young families, no kids, no teens, no single ministries. Museums. And so the people that travel the country, like a Dr. Tom Farrell, like a, like a Bud Calvert, like our missionaries, uh, I'm here, but they're out in church after church after church, literally not in dozens, but in hundreds of churches, and this is what they're, they're observing. And worse than all of that are the 3,700 churches that close every year in America. 3,700 churches will close in 2020. Half of those are churches that started up that failed. Ladies and gentlemen, that, that if you do the math, that is, uh, that is over 70 churches closing every week, 52 weeks a year. That means this week, on average, 70 churches will close. So let's not take it for granted when you see people that, that joined the church this morning, people that got saved, people that want to get baptized. That's something that we should be excited about and rejoicing in that, uh, that God would allow his spirit to, to work upon a couple of dozen people this year to, to bring them to our church or to get baptized to grow in the Lord. Ichabod is written over these churches. The glory has departed. As we examine the change in current trends in ministry, changes in doctrine, changes in worship, these are the foundational guiding principles for us to keep in mind. And so our goals, our goals, ultimate goal, it's easy, please God. Please God, that's what he says here in verse 4. And that's what he said in Ephesians. That's what he said in Corinthians. We want to please God. That's what my desire has been for 35 years as a pastor. I appreciate some of your comments about happy birthday on 60 years. May God give you another 60. You're much more optimistic than me, right? <laughs> I, I think it was Moses that made it to 120, but I, I don't see that in my future, all right? Uh, but uh, however long we have in this earth, may it be to please God. Amen. Next goal, lovingly lead people to Christ. Great commission. Is this, this should be your passion. You can get passionate about a lot of things, but if it's not number one and number two, you got the wrong passion. Just take some of that passion and put it into number two and then disciple them to please and obey Christ, to be able to help them to grow as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word they may grow thereby and as they're discipled that God has gifted them and God wants them to serve and, and if they can play in an orchestra, get them in the orchestra. If they can sing in the choir, sing the choir. If you can teach, you love kids, uh, you like to work outside, uh, uh, helps ministry, I, I, you'll see it on the back of the connection card every week. You can help here and you can help here and you can help here. That is an open invitation for you to help and serve God. And I, I have to tell you, it warms my heart when we get, get new members and then within the first month, they're out at events serving the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. They, they get it. They understand why we're here. And then to worship in spirit and truth. Our God is a holy God. 
He's a holy God. In John 4, 24, Jesus taught that woman, well, you worship in spirit. That's with all of your being. That's not the Holy Spirit. You worship with all of your being, body, soul, and spirit, and you worship in truth. If you don't worship according to truth, it's not worship. It's a false worship. Here's our challenge. Reaching our mission field where, with where they are right now. First Chronicles 12.32, I shared it with our leadership team last year. And the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Think about that. God highlights them in the middle of Chronicles. The men of Issachar, they're wise. They understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. But the times change. The times change. That means we have to be a student of our mission field. I had the opportunity to be with Pastor Mark Deloach just last week. He was an extremely successful uh, missionary in Kenya, Africa. He was an MP in the army at Fort Myers. Uh, he came to the church when I had become uh, an intern after graduating from college. They said, here, teach the single adults. And I had several army guys uh, from uh, Fort Myer there, and uh, he was an MP, and uh, he surrendered from ministry, went through the missions academy, went to the mission field. We took him on for support, and after having been widowed, uh, Pastor Calvert asked if I would join him. Two of the men that were singles in my singles class became missionaries, one in Malawi, one in, one in Kenya. And so uh, we, went, we went there, uh, uh, the church in Kenya, Thompson Falls Baptist Church was being organized, and we got to be there for that organizational service. Mike Lexo was down in Malawi. He's the first independent Baptist missionary to open that field up, and he was under great scrutiny and observation, uh, but we had services there as well. And uh, that church, uh, because of health reasons, uh, they have, uh, they have camp come home, and he started Abermall Baptist Church in Virginia, and uh, that God is blessing that work as well. But He gave me an update: the church that we invested in, Him planting that church, uh, national pastor. They've started six more churches since 1994. So glory to God for that. Uh, while we were there, um, a missionary had just arrived, Eric and Lori Bowman, and they were helpers to Mark Deloach, and they had a little baby. And that little baby, I thought, oh, my soul, is this really going to work out? Because this is a remote part of, of, uh, of Kenya. And I want you to know that at our last mission conference, that little baby's now grown up, and we took her on for support, Erica Bowman. And she's going uh, back to the, to the mission field. Her father is now field director for Africa for Baptist International Missions. When we got there, uh, Pastor Mark Deloach, I remember him taking, and it was such a rough road. It was a three-hour trip from Nairobi to get to, uh, uh, get to the, uh, the, his home and the church. I mean, some of the potholes were so big, the entire vehicle went into the pothole. And we're just bouncing around. I mean, this is a long trip to be able to, to get there. And he said, yeah, there is a shortcut, but I wanted to bring you the longer way so you would have the full missionary experience. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Had an opportunity to swing in a vine and all kinds of good stuff there. But, but I asked Pastor Deloach this question. I said, do you know what the third largest mission field in the world is by population? He said, well, I think America. I said, you're right. 
By population, China is number one, largest mission field in the world. Number two would be India. India. Number three is the United States of America. 50% of our population does not go to church, and that figure makes us the third largest mission field, not to mention that the 50% that do go to church, not all of them are saved. My next question was, Pastor Mark, when we send a missionary to the field, what do they need to do to be effective? And he gave the answer that you will probably give tonight. So a missionary goes to Bible college, does an internship, uh, gets ordained, goes around and has 40 to 50 churches support them, and they buy their tickets and they ship their stuff, and they arrive on a, for, in a, on a foreign field. What kind of practical instructions would you give this missionary to be effective in reaching people in, and you pick a country? What, what do they need to learn? They need to learn the language. Because if you're speaking a foreign language, you're not going to be able to share the gospel with them. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by word of God in their own tongue. Got to learn the language. What else do they need to learn? Customs. Customs. They need to learn their customs because they might do things differently. Uh, we actually had a, a missionary tell a story about a, a different missionary that had uh, rented a house, and in the renting of that house, the owner, the landlord, asked if he could put some of these bowls out front and said, sure, sure, not realizing it, that those bowls were offerings to false idols. You need to learn the customs. What else do you need to learn? If you're going to be a missionary going to the field. Exchange rate. Exchange rate. <laughs> you need to learn how, how they think. Do you need to learn what offends them? I've been to some mission fields, English speaking, and they said, don't say this and don't say this because that's cursing. We say it in America, it's not cursing. But we're not in America. We're in a different country. And so why would we needlessly curse at them because, well, I'm American. No, 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 no. Love says Jesus came from heaven to earth, right? Philippians chapter 2. And he came from heaven to earth, and he became a servant, and he died a cruel death on a cross to save us from our sins. And so I think the application is obvious. The goal is to bring people to Christ, but to do that, we have to be like the men of Issachar to be able to understand the times. Removing the obstacles that will hinder the opportunity of presenting Jesus to them. We live on a mission field that is foreign to the way 40-year-old and up grew up. Millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, XYZ, ABC, and whatever else they want to call themselves. They don't think like us. Four years ago, millions of Americans, million, tens of millions of Americans, voted for an avowed socialist. I think they're doing it again this year. That shows us we're living on a mission field. That shows us that millennials have been brainwashed by educators in school and high school and secondary university and media brainwashed and they can be 
easily offended. Our 21st century mission field is more like the first century mission field than ever before in the history of our country. And you can say, well, I don't like it. Well, that's just the way it is. The way it is. Moral absolutes. Where did they go? Support the murder of a partial birth born a baby. The promotion of homosexuality is natural and normal. The demonically controlled media and politicians have gonna, done a good job to stereotype Christians as fringe cultists. And if you haven't seen it, you can go to ChristianPost.com, an online evangelical. Uh, they have ties to the Southern Baptists, but they keep us informed of what's happening. When a charismatic pastor has an associate pastor and the two-year-old baby dies and the pastor of a megachurch calls for the congregation to pray for the resurrection of a baby down in the morgue. That man doesn't know his Bible. Doesn't know his Bible. The signs and wonders movement. And sadly, many wingnuts like Westboro Baptist Church have helped stain the testimony of Christians. And thankfully, they don't make the news anymore. But if you want to reach Kenyans for Christ, if you want to reach the French for Christ or the British or the people in Uganda or China or America, then we need to be like the men of Issachar and ask God for wisdom. The last two decades, we have seen the evangelical church, Bible-believing churches, become Laodicean churches of Revelation chapter 3. We've seen Bible-believing churches become museums of silver heads. God wants us to be multi-generational churches. About a year ago, I gave an illustration to, to our church family on a Sunday morning that bears repeating for both the older and the younger generation. It was Thanksgiving dinner. At Thanksgiving dinner, when the family gets together, Grandpa's on the floor playing with his grandson Tonka toys. Does Grandpa really want to be on the floor, on the hard floor playing Tonka toys? Well, I don't think he actually does. And Grandma pretends to have a, a, a tea party uh, with her toddler granddaughter drinking invisible tea. Does she really enjoy drinking invisible tea? I don't think so. But she loves her granddaughter. And then, and then the children sit at the table for an hour listening to adult conversation and they're anxious to leave, but they don't leave. Why? Why? Because of respect and love for grandma and grandpa. Because of love. And because of love and respect, the older and the younger generation give up their demands, give up their preferences because of love. And so when the young families drive up and, and they, got a, they got a car seat carrier with a baby and they're trying to hold on to a toddler and, and you know, there, there's, all those, there's all those handicapped spaces and then there's the visitor parking and then there's the senior parking. They don't get priority parking. But because of love, the younger families yield. And then there might be a course that, that maybe you don't like, 
but because of love, it blesses someone else. Does that make sense? I think the application is obvious. Because of love and respect, the older and the younger generation, do you really want a single generation church? We have churches around here where, you know, you go and they give you earplugs. <laughs> earplugs to block the noise that's coming from the platform. And then you go to other churches and, and they need to pass out hearing aids. <laughs> Which do you want to be? Practical application of methods of ministry. Well, you're looking at one right now. It's called the use of screens. Uh, we used, when we moved into this building in 1996, we had, uh, there's actually a screen there and you bring it down and we had one projector and it would project on, on that screen. And then as the technology got better, we were able to have, have uh, two screens. I, I remember this is more than a dozen years ago when we, on a Sunday night, began showing the words of the hymns on the screen. And we had a center aisle at the time, and I, uh, I was uh, shaking hands, and this, this man, an uh, elderly man, he, say, he came and he said to me rather gruffly, I don't want the songs on the wall. My old church did that, and they changed everything. And then he said, if you keep changing, I'm out of here. I said, called him by his first name, I said, we're not changing everything. But the other senior saints thanked me because they can see the words easier than in the hymn book. Amen. I had so many people. So I can, I can see the words. And we have some dark spots in the balcony as well. I can see the words. Thank you. Thank you. Didn't, didn't make everybody, what well, made everybody happy but one. Uh, you know, he didn't leave the church, and I did his funeral two years later, and I said nice things about him, okay? <laughs> the servant of the Lord must not strive. Be gentle to all men. In meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. Now, in the 1960s, I was, I was just an unsaved little boy in a, in, a, in a Protestant church, but he was in a Bible-believing church where missionaries would come in. Do you remember the, the carousels, the sly carousels? Upside down, excuse me, turn over. Do you, do you remember what they showed, the pictures of the people from the mission field? What they showed it on? Screens. <laughs> that was in the 1960s. They used screens in the 1960s. I think you get, get the idea here. Uh, there are churches, they put out pamphlets condemning churches that use screens. They're out of touch. They're not the men of Issachar. We use technology for God's glory. A lady was saved not too long ago after a Christian friend witnessed to her for years. Uh, she is she's married to a Jewish atheist. She joined the church. She's going to be getting baptized. When Jody and I met to hear her testimony of salvation and explain baptism, 
I asked her if she'd ever seen a baptism. She said, I never have, but uh, Susan Elstock uh, uh, directed me to a link, and I was able to watch a baptism for the first time. And so as she's inviting her unsaved Jewish atheist husband to come to church next week, he said, well, what do they do? She said, well, well uh, what you do is, is at the end of the service, I'm going to put on a robe. I'm going to go down to the baptistry pool, and, and I'm going to go under the water and come up, and that's a picture of Jesus uh, dying, being buried, and being raised again. You know what he said? He said, a robe. What is that, a cult? What is that, a cult? Do you know, in my 60 years of life, it never occurred to me that wearing a baptistry robe, a baptismal robe, associated us with a cult. But I'm not a Jewish atheist in the 21st century. That's not the way I think. But we are called to reach Jewish atheists in the 21st century. And you know what I said to her? I said, well, guess what? We're, we're not going to have robes on March the 1st. We're going to have shirts that say, I have decided to follow Jesus, right? <laughs> That'll show your husband, we're not a cult. <laughs> but you know, if I could read minds, some of you are going to say, there they go again. Look at that. Look at that. No robes. What's next? What's next? Bathing suits? <laughs> really? I'm supposed to be teaching this summer about how to not have problems in church, all right? You got to help me out here. <laughs> I tell the story, but we introduced shirts instead of baptismal robes and how everybody was for it. Amen? Yeah. All those opposed, don't say a word right now. <laughs> Mess up my illustration in June. It just didn't occur to me. But as you think about it, Mormons wear robes. If you watch TV or movies and they have these wacky cult leaders, the women are in robes. And so to our culture, that's what a Jewish atheist associates. Religion and robes must be a cult. Current theological trends. Those are some practices here, some trends. Pre-wrath rapture. Do those three words mean anything to you? Raise your hand. Pre-wrath rapture. Oh, good. I'm glad most of you don't know what it is. Okay. The Bible teaches that there's going to be a rapture. It's taught in John chapter 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Lord's going to appear in the sky. The dead in Christ rise first. We are caught up together to be with the, uh, the Lord in the clouds forever. Seven years of tribulation. It's Daniel's 70th week. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Dr. John Walford, president of Dallas Theological Seminary, in his book, Dispensationalism Today, he has 50 reasons for a pre-tribulational rapture. And 49 of them are really good. I think one's kind of weak. But 49 reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. But someone comes along and says, well, I don't believe that. I believe in a pre-wrath. You say, what's that? They're still trying to figure it out. Uh, meaning that sometime during the tribulation, 
There's going to be the great wrath of the second half of the tribulation, and then the rapture is going to happen then. And they take some verses and they twist it a little bit. He said, do people really buy, buy into that? One of the uh, most famous national preachers out of Chicago who is no longer pastoring his church because he had anger issues, but he promoted a pre-wrath. Uh, a, a writer with the uh, Friends of Israel, no longer with them, promoted the pre-wrath. One of our missionaries, while I was away this week, wrote me and said, I just want you to know that, a missionary to Japan, I just want you to know that I'm now choosing a pre-wrath position. Second time, a missionary. Now, when he presented himself, he presented himself as doctrinally aligned with us. Now he's not. So we will, we will discontinue support. Pre-wrath is a wind of doctrine. Calvinism. Calvinism. There was a uh, missionary from Canada. He was in Toronto years ago, and he said, I, uh, I just want you to know, Pastor Wonder, I'm now a Calvinist. I didn't know if you wanted to continue to support me. And, and uh, so we talked about a few things, and I think I really would like you to be able to see that. Um, you know John 3.16. We won't turn to that one. Can you say it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so as I quoted that common verse to him, he said, well, this is the interpretation. The interpretation is, God so loved the world of the elect. Jesus didn't die for the world. He died only for the people who get saved. So if you would turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and I share this verse with him. First John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, the saved, the elect, but also for the sins of the whole world. And he tried to explain to me that what that verse means is Jesus died for our sins, but he also died for our sins. Again, world means the world of the elect. I said, no, 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 that's not what it says. It says that he is the propitiation, the satisfaction. He died for our sins, the saved. But not only for our sins, he also died, what's it say, for the sins of the, the whole world. You got it. You are not a Calvinist. If you are, you're not a good Calvinist. So we met with the staff, and we, I said, okay, you know, if you want to believe that, as long as you do the work of the ministry, I said, our interns, uh, they're out in visitation, and they do this and that, and, uh, we, 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 and he's with another man doing this mission work, and, and I said, after meeting with our men, we prayed, we went back and said, you know, if you're out you know, at least two times a week, I'm sure you're going to be out more, and, and he called me back, and he said, you know, Pastor, I talked to the other fellow I minister with, and he said... I don't think I should accept financial support from Valley Forge Baptist because if I go out, I'm going out because of a wrong reason. I'm going out witnessing to people because there are strings attached to the financial support. 
I said, you've, you've got to be kidding. Why don't you go out? Because, because Jesus commanded you to go out. And we discontinued the support. When he presented himself, he had one doctrine. He changed. The winds of doctrine blew him hither and yon. 1 Peter 1, 2, if you would turn over just a couple of pages. Up oh, the other way. 1 Peter 1, 2. But pastor, don't you know that we're elect? 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. There it is. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. What does foreknowledge mean? It means to, it means to know before. Uh, I, Moses prayed, God, you are from everlasting to everlasting. And so the circle here represents eternity. God sees everything at once. Eternity past, eternity future. God sees everything at once. But there was a moment in time that time began, and I don't know if you can see it, the timeline of history. There's a little, little line there. The beginning of the line comes out of eternity. That's Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Time began. Time began at a point in time, six literal 24-hour days. God created the world. The seventh day, he rested. And there's been a few thousand years. Jesus Christ came. There's been 2,000 years. There's going to be a return of Christ. There's going to be a 1,000 years where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign upon this earth. At the end of that, there's the battle of Gog and Magog, Revelation chapter 20. Fire comes down from heaven. And then Peter says that this earth is going to be what? It's going to be burned with fire and I saw a new heaven and a new earth and then you return back into eternity elect according to the foreknowledge of God means God sees everything at once we don't but he does that is not predestination elect according to the foreordination elect according to the predestination I, I'm just not in a position to tell God that he chose the wrong word. That's arrogance. That's pride. He said foreknowledge. Why would I change what God wrote? Romans chapter 8. The word predestination is used, but in a different context. Romans chapter 8. We know 8.28, that all things work together for good to them that love God. But verse 29 he says, for whom he did foreknow, there it is, there it is, for whom he did foreknow, and he knows who's going to be saved. His election's based upon that foreknowledge. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What that, what that means is, God in his foreknowledge knows who's going to be saved, and then those who are saved are predestinated to become like Jesus Christ. The door of heaven. It says, whosoever will may come. It says, Jesus died for the sins of the world. God knows who's going to be saved, but we don't. We're to tell everyone. Isn't that what he said? Every creature that's alive, we're to tell them. You die and you go to heaven, or you're raptured. You look at the same gate, chosen before the foundation of the world. That's pretty cool. That's the sovereignty of God. You say, well, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? I sure do. Now, if you want to put God in a box, then be a Calvinist. But we follow Jesus, not Calvin. We follow Jesus, not Calvin. 
And then, those who do follow Calvin, then they have to figure out, is it infralapsarianism? Is it sublapsarianism? Is it supralapsarianism? You say, what does that mean? I really don't know. It's the <laughs> decrees of God, and they got to put the decrees of God in different order. You go to an extreme in anything, and you are in error. And so, let's just be simple enough and faith-filled enough to say, God's God. And if you say you figured him out, uh, you're lying. You're not genuine. Let's just have faith and obedience to what God says. And so I don't need to become a Calvinist. That's the new wind blowing. And so I have a little pamphlet here, uh, a biblical choice, Biblicism or Calvinism. It was written years ago by Dr. E. Robert Jordan, Calvinist or Biblicist. And you know what he says? I'm a Biblicist, not a Calvinist. I follow the Bible, not Calvin. Got 100 copies of these on the, uh, uh, on the uh, welcome desk. You're welcome to pick one up and to be able to read through that. Uh, just a couple of more here, these wins. A uh, popular one is, is no confession of sin. The belief that you do not need to confess your sins because the moment that you are saved, all of your sins are forgiven, which we believe. But then the, the new teaching is that your fellowship with God is secure and you never have to confess your sin. That flies against what Jesus taught Peter when he washed his feet. Don't wash, don't wash my feet, Lord. No, no, no. Uh, uh, I need to wash your feet or you have no part with me. He says, wash all of me. And Jesus said, no, you're already clean. But as you walk through the world, your feet get dirty. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is written to Christians. And I don't know about you, but I kind of need that every day. <laughs> if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves the truth is not in us I need to ask God to forgive me you need to ask God to forgive you it is a false teaching that young men are swallowing and buying into and then they're teaching the sheep you don't got to confess your sin balance in music Ephesians 5.19 Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs majesty music choruses Sovereign Grace songs, which are now in majesty hymnals and have been for years. The song that James sound, sung tonight. Wasn't that a blessing to you? Amen. You know that song is not, that wasn't written 100 years ago. Just a few years ago. Took an old hymn, gave it a new melody, added a, a bridge chorus to it, and we were blessed. And because it wasn't ritual for those of us who've been saved for four decades, you kind of listen to the words in a fresh way and you meditate upon them and you worship the Lord. It's good. That's good. And then, no invitations. Oh, invitations, they were started by Charles Finney 100 years ago. No, no. The Old Testament says, come. Jesus said, come. The Spirit says, come. The bride says, come. The church says, come. We invite people to Christ. And you can do that, you can apply that different ways. Uh, when we have our gathering space, we'll, we'll have the invitation here, and then we'll invite people to come out there and meet with the pastors and, and give them literature on how they can know for certain how they're going to go to heaven. But no invitation. Uh, here's one. Uh, dress down. How much is too much? What about in the mission field? If you've, you've visited missionaries in the mission field, depends on what the culture is. Some wear ties and some don't. 
we have noticed as a pastoral staff on Wednesday night, men, most of you don't wear ties. Most of you don't wear ties when you go to work. The men of Issachar are wise to understand what's going on. Reaching the poor without the gospel, not going to happen around here. Reaching the poor without sharing the gospel. Okay, that, that, uh, that kind of gives you a, a good idea of, of how to, to, to remain biblically healthy, growing, without not becoming an extreme. Not jumping off a spiritual cliff and not becoming a museum, but to be a place where God uses us to plant the gospel and see people saved and then they get baptized and then they disciple and then they serve and they let their light shine and yes they get persecuted and then they rejoice and more people get saved pleasing God is our highest goal will we get everything right no no but God is very gracious, and he's given us a lot of freedom on how to do outreaches and how to make disciples. And so, sportsman banquet? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Basketball? Pickleball? Really? Yeah. Door hangers? God has given us a lot of freedom in how to be salt and light. What are you doing to build up your church? Do you pray for your church daily? Do you pray for your pastors? Do you pray for your deacons? Do you pray for people to be saved on Sunday? Do you pray for people to be saved on Monday uh, and, and in the prison ministry? You can participate. Or you can just criticize. Leonard Bernstein traveled the world, and he said, I have yet to see a statue to a critic. <laughs> Dr. Tom Farrell shared a message just last week. I was in Israel with my wife. We're in the back of a taxi cab, and he asked the question, are you an Orthodox Jew? And the man said, yes, I am. I suppose you read your Bible, he said, every day. He said, great. Can I ask you a few questions? He said, absolutely. Uh, can you tell me about a man named Eliab in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Eliab. Eliab. Yes, Eliab. He said, Eli, are, you, are you sure that's in the Old Testament scriptures? He said, oh, yes, it is. No, I'm not familiar with that. Can you tell me about a, a man named David? And he said, oh, yes, I can tell you about David. And he went on and on and on and on. Well, Eliab is David's brother. Eliab's the oldest. David's the youngest. Eliab's the critic. And David's the guy down in the valley with the slingshot taken on the giant. Evidence. No one builds a statue to a critic. Let's not be Eliab's and say what's wrong with everything. Let's be the David's and show what God is doing. Is that good? God bless Tom Farrell. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time tonight uh, to consider standing firm loving people, being gracious, men of Issachar, understanding the times, being wise, to connect with our culture, to show people that we care because we love them, to remove obstacles that will hinder their understanding of your truth. And Father, I pray that each one of us 
will be part of building up what you're building up, that as you add to the body of Christ, that every one of us will make these new members feel welcome, loved, nurtured, cared for, a part of the work of God, the lighthouse that shines the good news of Christ. So, Father, would you now put upon our hearts, would you prompt us by your Spirit, both in prayer and attitude and service and singing and action and involvement for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. We'll be singing a song of invitation. Change my heart, oh God. That's a good one. Good choice, Dan. Change my heart, oh God. May my heart be bent on God's heart as we sing it tonight. Let God have his way in your life.